Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. I'm Mark Kastner. This is the Sounder at Heart podcast. Joined by my co-host, Mickey Turner. This is the other voice that you hear. Tim Foss. Of course, Ari Lillian Wall. This has been an extremely weird podcast. Getting dragged all day. So the bottom line is they, they don't have an answer to that. There's a reason they got signed to first team contracts. And if you're not going to give them respect for that, then have fun losing again next Very year. special guest, Brian Spencer, head coach of the Seattle Sounders. You know who he is. Brian how are you doing? I'd start off, Jeremiah, by saying one thing, and this isn't my quote. I have to attribute this to Tom Dutra. He always says, tough times don't last, tough people do. Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. Uh, we have we have an interesting game this week. We have a, a game against a, a team the Sounders have not played for at least two years 2019 last time these two teams played right I th- yeah that would have been right yeah and I'm, a funny fun story about that game but we'll get back to it yeah let me introduce you first i'm bad at this joe patrick <laughs> of dirty south soccer is joining me to talk about the atlanta united sounders game on sunday uh you had a, a funny note about the 2019 game that you were going to share. Well, there was a, I don't, I don't, I don't even remember it, how that game ended. If Atlanta United lost, they either lost or drew, but there was it, Joseph Martinez scored a goal in that game to tie yes. it at one. Yes. And there's the, there's a famous story. Felipe Cardenas at the athletic wrote about it, how F- Frank DeBoer and his staff started celebrating for the tying goal. And Joseph Martinez then chewed him out for doing such. So kind of funny. Yeah, so I'll tell you the I'm as you're talking about it, I'm now remembering the game reasonably vividly. But uh that you're right. Joseph Martinez tied this game, I think, late in the first half. I, I think so, yeah. And then Raul Ruiz Diaz won it on that insane uh That's sombrero right. goal. That amazing goal. Yeah. And I yeah. I think I've held him as like my number one striker in, in MLS ever since because that guy is just unbelievable. I feel like every time I watch him play. Yeah, it was kind of like his level. I feel like that was the mate. It was among the first times where I think I really appreciated like how because we'd seen clips of him scoring goals like this, but that was the first that it was like out of my mind. Like, how does that possible kind of goal? And it was one of those things where, you know, there's a lot of fluky goals that people hit that are kind of amazing. But that one was he clearly knew what he was he clearly set it up in his mind and made it happen. And, and he did that to miles Robinson. If I recall yeah, correctly, I think you're and right. he like, no one does that kind of thing to miles Robinson. He's like the most athletic, best pure defender. One of the best I've seen in MLS. So it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So uh, the Sounders come into the, and that was, and that was of course the rematch of the time the Sounders killed soccer in 2018 <laughs> uh, when they, ruined the atlanta That's united's right. bid on national tv right after the I world have a cup. funny story about that one too oh man so i let me can i if, you, if you'll yes of course real quick. so so yeah. that was in the summer and then like sometime in the days following that game i was attending a graduation party uh for at my parents house and so they had a bunch of people over and there was like your classic like you know your seattle fans will probably picture a certain type of fan from the South. And this is that fan who is like this, like uh, macho Southerner guy who's all into, you know, football and, uh, and was just like berating me for, he was like, he was like, so you cover soccer. That was the most boring thing I've ever seen. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and like, I almost got, we almost got into fisticuffs. Like, 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 hold me back, hold me back. You know, no, but uh, it was, you know it was funny. You know, you say that. And all of a sudden I have, 
a slightly better appreciation for kind of the accusation that the Sounders uh, killed football that day. Because, like, I think in Seattle, we have, like, a pretty – like, our fan base here is very much like a soccer fan base. And it's, like, we're not necessarily convincing a lot of – like, very few people, like, watch the Sounders for their first experience of soccer. And I don't I don't want to – I don't want to paint with too wide of a brush. But I can kind of see if the concept of, like, the Atlanta soccer fan is a little bit more like, no, these are – a lot of times they're learning about soccer through – Atlanta United and I could see how if you're trying to reach that demographic how that game would feel more like cynical than to a soccer fan who's just like yeah it's a a team that isn't at full strength playing a team that is at full strength and mm-hmm. they're just trying to grind out a point like they're not out there to like win style points yeah and then I think Barco Gate happened like later that week after that Seattle game. So like really the true destruction of soccer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> for at least for at least a little bit. But uh yeah, fun times, man. It's like it's like a different era back then. I know it is. So different time of our lives. Very different time of our lives. So I, I have a few things I wanted to talk to you about, but let's let's get this stuff out of the way first. Uh there was a big story that came out in the athletic. You mentioned Felipe Cardenas. Uh, really interesting story about kind of the state of Atlanta United and and Darren Eels compared it to a I don't know if he called it a soap opera or a Game of Thrones. I think tabloid BS, I want to say. He actually, he actually went on this rant at the radio station that I'm employed at. And while he was on there, I was like texting the producer like this is great radio. <laughs> <laughs> so like what's your what's your take? Like if you could kind of give us a broad view of what happened so our listeners who maybe don't know what happened uh, can understand what we're talking about. Uh, like, wh- how would you describe the story? So I-, I think the story goes back to when Atlanta United was founded and they were building this team that was very exciting under Tata Martino. And obviously a guy like Tata has a ton of influence and in players that he brings in. He was you know, Miguel Amron was like, yeah, Tata called me and said, you know, can you count on me? And so he kind of assembled a lot of that squad, as did, in my opinion, like Paul McDonough from people I've talked to. Obviously, he's one of the best MLS GMs um, in kind of this modern era. Um, he w- obviously had a huge hand in that. And Carlos Bocanegra has been at the helm as the you know technical director. He's had a couple of different titles. I forget exactly what they've been, but you know, he's been the technical director since this thing started. And so um, it's been interesting to see how this team has evolved because he's been kind of the one constant, you know, Tata came left, had success. Paul McDonough also left after that 20, 2018 season, or maybe it was the 2019 season, but, um, but the, the, the play, the personnel decisions that the, that the team has made specifically since McDonough left, um, the farther you get away from that event, the worse it seems like the the personnel decisions have been. And honestly, a lot of that came into light even after Felipe's piece ran when the MLS rosters dropped and we could see a player like Mateus Rosetto, somebody probably a lot of MLS fans don't even know who that is, uh, is getting is making six hundred and sixty thousand dollars this year in salary. Um, and so that's kind of one of these one of the decisions that is kind of emblematic of maybe the decision, the poor decisions that Carlos Bocanegra has made. And then the other thing that obviously kind of ran through uh, Felipe's piece was just generally the, the manner and kind of some of the behaviors that, that Bocanegra has displayed in some of these negotiations. And then obviously there's, you know, quite a bit of disgruntled former Atlanta United 
people. I don't know exactly if they're players or other people who worked in the office or whatever, but clearly a lot of people have a bone to pick with Carlos Bocanegra. And I think that it speaks volumes. The fact that so many people do, you know, have so many kind of bones to pick with him uh, since leaving. So I think that that speaks a little bit to maybe an abrasive kind of style that he has, you know, obviously he's still, he's such a determined guy, former captain for the U S men's national team. Um, and you know, that kind of headstrong, um, personality is what makes you very successful as a player, but obviously this is his first job still post playing career. And so I think that the, you know, the book is still out on him, um, to, to a large extent as to how well he is doing essentially his job as the technical director here. And Paul McDonough is now back the, the club was able to bring him back from inter Miami this off season. So, and I think according to Felipe's piece, uh, Carlos, uh, contract is up next year. So, and I think it's next March. So this would be like his last kind of regular season at the helm if they don't extend that. So it will be interesting to see uh, how the club moves forward. So one of the things that I, I, I guess I knew, but I don't know if I fully appreciated was, you know, he was one of the first hires that Atlanta mm-hmm. United made. They hired him without like almost right off of his playing career. Like mm-hmm. he hadn't been an assistant. I mean, he, I want to say retired and became the technical director. Now he did it with a couple years lead time before Atlanta joined the league. But how, what about him? Do you think gave Darren Eels and the kind of the, the power structure, the confidence that this guy with no, literally no experience could be the technical director of a club that they had a really high vision for and then how much credit do you think he ultimately deserves for that kind of blazing start out of the gate it was a very interesting decision uh you know it's funny because when he was hired and obviously in the run-up before he was hired I wasn't even writing or affiliated with Dirty South Soccer or anything but I was obviously an interested soccer fan who was kind of keeping tabs on some of this stuff and I remember being really surprised just seeing the rumors that this was potentially going to happen that he would be appointed in, especially in such a high role um, for the reasons that you said, you know, it's just odd that he would be elevated to such a position without really having the technical experience uh, to do so. But, you know, if there's one thing that kind of runs through Darren Eels and this, and the club in general's um, behaviors, it's this, it's this want to like be bold and to, and to, and to make an impact with big names and all this kind of stuff. And I think that Carlos Bocanegra really fit into that nicely early on where he was a name that everybody in American soccer pretty much knew. Uh, I think, I think Darren, you know, quite clearly, if you want to put somebody in this role, you have to have, you have to evaluate them by some objective measure that they know what they're doing in terms of evaluating players and things like that. And I think that obviously Darren felt he was comfortable in doing so and kind of establishing that vision. But I think honestly, the biggest thing, the, the, the biggest motivating factor for Darren putting him in that position was just the, the general kind of gravity that, that, um, that Bocanegra could attract just in terms of the visibility to the club, because when it did happen, it was kind of a big story around yeah. the country. You know, it was like, wow, Carlos Bocanegra, technical director at Atlanta United. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that honestly, you know, it, the pieces did kind of fall in the right place with them able to get Tata in where he had his own strengths in recruiting some of the South American players. Carlos Bocanegra was primarily tasked and Paul McDonough tasked with kind of, you know, footing in the pieces, the MLS experience pieces, the Jeff Lorenowitzes, the Michael Parkhurst. And I think that it, you know, it all fell into place. And I think that you can't not give credit to Carlos Bocanegra. I feel like sometimes we want to kind of 
overlook the credit that he maybe deserves because of the way that things have gone recently. But um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, it, it was a very interesting move when they made it and then they elevated him, you know, he, they elevated his role to vice president after the first year. So I think clearly they were, at least Darren was happy with, uh, with mm-hmm. the work that was being done. So one of the things I always think is fascinating about Atlanta is how it compares and contrasts to Seattle. Cause for me personally, like one of the first things that jumped out was I'm way back when, when I wrote about Atlanta for a piece that I have been living down for the last five years. Uh, I remember an Atlanta fan like being honestly saying like, I really think we could be the next Seattle. And I just thought it was the most outrageous claim I had ever heard at the time because it had no base. Like to me, it had no basis in like, what are you using this as like, where do you get this from? And of course they exceeded Seattle in almost, almost every metric, uh, certainly fan engagement and all. And I, and I think that's somewhat natural and that MLS was in a very different place when, when Atlanta launched and when the Sounders launched, but one of the other things I think that's interesting is like for as fast as Atlanta started, it doesn't seem like the same foundation was there. And I'm curious from your perspective, if it does feel like, I don't, I don't want to say that any shortcuts were taken because I don't think you could call them shortcuts, but I do think there was this kind of turbochargedness to the beginning at Atlanta that maybe has contributed to a little bit of a flattening, like a faster flattening. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that that's totally right. And again, I'll go back to Tata Martino and say that when they realized that they were going to be able to hire somebody of that caliber, that I think that that puts you on a different trajectory when you're launching a club. And I would also say that I think Atlanta was kind of set a standard. <clears throat> Sorry, I keep uh, kind of clearing my breath. I accidentally okay. worked out before this <laughs> major, major mistake. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think that Atlanta honestly kind of set the standard as to what you can do as an expansion club in this league um, with the monies that are made available to you, the Mm -hmm. extra advantages that the league has given these teams. Um, And I think that, you know, and and Minnesota went a different way. These two teams launched the same year in MLS. And I think that I think that Minnesota has shown that you can have a different trajectory that's also successful. But clearly what Atlanta United wanted to do was come out of the gates firing. I think that they knew that they had to have a team that was like that to kind of get the, the, the fan base engaged in, in the team and in the sport. Uh, And that was really important for this club. You know, they were going, they were putting them in a huge stadium to start, you know, obviously it didn't end up, they weren't able to go in there day one, but uh, you know, I think that that was really important to this club. And, and, and Carl Spokenegra talked about this in a a supporters um, town hall meeting last year, kind of a virtual one that they did on YouTube and, you know, he, he admitted, he said that, you know, the team was really, they realized they were kind of in this quote unquote championship window, that they had that kind of quality of team and that they really wanted to push in 2018, uh, especially to try to maximize all the value they could for that year to try to, you know, put the best team forward to, to win MLS Cup. And I think that by doing so, they were able to really capture um, something in this fan base that really created a ton of rock solid fans that will really be with this club uh, from, you know, till the day they die uh, to borrow a phrase, you know, uh, as in soccer circles. So I think that it was not maybe the, the, the way that every team should go, but I think that it's definitely something that worked here in this city and, and for this club and what they want to do. And I, I think to be fair, it's hard to second guess any of that uh, because they have set such a high foundation that there is, you know, 
there's frustrations today, I would imagine, but it probably sets them up better for five, 10 years now than if they had a slower build. Uh, that said, I think one of the things that's interesting is kind of the sliding doors aspect of, of this, where 2019, I think, oftentimes gets written off as kind of the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, it was so close to being like another jewel in the crown. Like it was totally. like they, they had a home game against a very beatable Toronto FC team in the Eastern Conference Finals. They win that. They host MLS Cup. I mean, and they should have good... they, they won that game. If you look right. at the and XG, they were the better team, like, it was, yeah, they dominated that game. I, Toronto had like three shots and two of them were from crazy town and, and right. went in, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and so they would have won in, I mean, it would have been a soft treble, but it would have been, they would have won three trophies that year. Right. They would have, they had Campionas cup. They had us open cup and potentially like they would have been hosting the Sounders. Who knows how that goes? I think it's, entirely plausible that they could have won that especially at home and it would have been in atlanta they would you know they right exactly hosted again yeah they would have hosted back to they would have been hosting i think the first team probably well the first team to ever have won the right to host i think la may have hosted twice in a row but i think the first one was a predetermined site but anyway that's a totally pointless no i I mean darren eels brings this up all the time when he's making public statements kind of reminding people how successful that 2019 campaign was and it's a really fascinating year uh in the history of atlanta united because it started off so poorly under frank DeBoer that and it was more than just tactical like like the like the tactics were poor but also the players were not invested i think in what he was doing and i say this as somebody you know, we've actually, we've had the great fortune, myself and my podcasting partner, Sam Jones, uh, have talked to many former players, Jeff Lorenowitz, Michael Parkhurst, uh, current players as well that were on that team. And I think that, you know, they just weren't, they weren't a cohesive group. There was some turnover that happened from 2018 to 2019 that obviously when you lose a manager, there, there's going to be something that happens. And the, the, the one, the most interesting part of that managerial change is this, is that Tata Martino was kind of a father figure for a lot of those players that were those, especially the, you know, the South American contingent, of course, that were on the 2017, 2018, 18 teams. When you pull that figure out, you pull out all the structure that he brings in the locker room with him. And then you have other players that are trying to like find their place again and kind of make up for that loss of structure. So you have Leandro Gonzalez Pires, who's all of a sudden seeing himself as like an important team leader, which he was Uh, Joseph Martinez the same way. And then that causes friction with the new manager who's coming in, who's trying to kind of keep things even level. So there's a lot of like personal dynamics going on in that 2019 team as well. They were able to click it on again, going back to that Seattle game. It was after that game where they kind of really turned it on uh, in 2019 they played the Houston Dynamo, which they were very fortunate to get an early red card in that game that the Dynamo did and Atlanta United ended up winning like five, nothing or something. And that was kind of the result that was able to propel them through. Uh, and they really changed the way, the style in which they played, they changed the formation. And I think they also had a, just a, they had a, they had a, uh, a switch in mentality where they were like, let's just go for it, be attacking again. Um, Cause Frank DeBoer really didn't really give them a whole lot of what I, I feel like instruction or belief in themselves to be able to do that kind of thing. So it was an interesting year, but again, yeah, you look at it. And I think that honestly, they were just, they were carried by a lot of talented players and a lot of players that had experience together from, from previous seasons. Well, and then I think what's even 
was equally remarkable is how quickly the bottom fell out, not just of Atlanta, but of the Frank DeBoer era. Like he was fired right after the MLS's back tournament. I mean, that was mm-hmm. what five games. So he got five games. In, yep, five like, games in 2020. A, right. Five games in 2020, including a huge span of just lost time due to the pandemic at a time when you would have thought teams would have been ultra careful not to like read too much into results. And, you know, of course, Atlanta finishes the season out of the playoffs and, and, but not particularly far out of the playoffs. Uh, I mean, it was a bad season. I think you would agree, but it was just interesting how quickly the Frank DeBoer kind of experiment was, had the plug pulled on it. Uh, it, I guess, I assume that must've been something they were considering during 2019, even when they were making this run. Maybe I'm not, I'm not sure the, uh, you know, the, the thing was that 2020 MLS's back tournament was really a catastrophic moment for the club. Like they were legitimately the worst team in that tournament. Atlanta mm-hmm. United, this team that again right. was so close to winning a treble the year before. That's not normal. You know, like that is something where it's like alarm bells should be going off. And obviously Joseph Martinez was missing for that. That's obviously a huge piece. That's not replaceable as much as they wanted to say that they could, they had, you know, replacements and things like that. But there was also major discord inside the team. Um, I'll just say it now, like Pinty Martinez. I, I think this is this may be public. Felipe may have reported this, but <clears throat> Pinty Martinez like walked off the field in the training before they left, and apparently did not want to go to that tournament. He did end up going. They convinced him to do that, but there was not. It was not a harmonious squad whatsoever at that point. Um, and again, you, you, un, you kind of understand it because the state of the world at the point, it was a really weird time, lots of different stresses for players at that point, but then you get there and you definitely see that there are teams in this league who were very united, you know, very, like very, had a lot of kind of cohesion together, looked excited to be playing, looked happy out there to be finally playing a sport where they weren't able to play for so long. And Atlanta United looked like they just couldn't get out of that place fast enough. You know, like they had no desire to be there. And I think that that was really the main thing. It wasn't really about the results necessarily mm. for Frank DeBoer. It was about the the personality of the squad was completely gone at that point. Right. And there was no point in trying to ride it out. Well, I guess that brings us to 2021. It's been an uneven start. Not a bad, I wouldn't say it's a bad start. There are eight points through five games. They at times look pretty decent in champions league uh what's your assessment of where this team is is it is it closer to 2018 or closer to 2020 in terms of the build out uh, def- definitely 2018 i mean uh, this team is uh, on the right path 100 percent under gabriel heinze and again a lot of it comes back to the belief that the players have in the manager and a part of that is down to the fact that the manager was one of the player or w- one of the people who brought in a lot of these players who helped select the players. And I think that that's one of the things to go back to Felipe's piece where I think that, you know, Gabriel Hines, a lot of that stuff that Felipe reported, you know, this is happening over a long period of time. So some Mm -hmm. of these facts that are just being revealed to us now happened many like years ago, but really this team now is in a different place where I think, you know, Carlos Bocanegra and some of the front office staff had learned to, you know, it will make sense. And that, and Gabriel Hines, they're not going to get a manager like Gabriel Hines unless they give him some power to, you know, have say in, in some of the players that they want to target. So I do think that this team is more cohesive in that respect and just is more bought into the whole philosophy and what they want to do. And I think that the players just from talking to them are, 
inspired to be learning something new and to like feel like they're seeing the rewards, even though they're not necessarily getting the goals yet. I think that the players understand that they're playing in a much more attractive um, and maybe demanding, but it's a, it's a more attractive and it's a funner style to play in. Um, They're still struggling to score goals, you know, like, as you mentioned, the results have been, pretty mediocre so far but honestly I don't think that that's something that was unexpected at least for me because when you have a guy like Gabriel Heinze coming in and taking over a team that was like let's not pay, let's not you know code over it like Atlanta United was like a bottom three team in MLS last year and they earned that bottom three it's not like mm-hmm. they were it's not like the step there was like some um like a like a, you know they they deserve to be down there based on their performances so there was a lot of rebuilding that had to be done um and so i just feel like they are in a better space and there it's going to be a basically a, i'm looking at this as a two-year plan gabriel heinze is on a two-year contract they've got a lot of things that they need to do on the roster during that time to kind of peak in what i would say is 2020 was next year 2022 <laughs> but um you know i think that they're on they're on that path and i think that they in the meantime they can achieve things this year. Um, it's just a matter of how fast that that improvement's going to be able to accelerate. But, you know, I think that they're still, this game could go poorly for them running into a, a, a red hot Seattle Sounders team. But uh, I think that generally things are pointing definitely in the right direction this year. So zeroing in a little bit on, on the on-field stuff, what's your assessment of where Joseph Martinez is in terms of his return to form? I was much more worried about Joseph a month ago. Um, you know, it, you never, you didn't expect him to look great in, in training camp and things like that. But even once the season got started, it was still kind of like, oh man, he's, um, you know, he was, he was clearly overweight over his playing weight. He would say it, you know, and the, I'm overweight too, but you know, I, I was always weird talking about players fitness, but he clearly was <laughs> overweight and, you know, and he revealed that he had a lot more, he had setbacks that, we didn't know about during his, uh, during his recovery, he had some infections, uh, he had to have multiple surgeries. So there were some, there were some issues there, but he is now looking like a player who is improving week on week that you know, he, he is, he's not back to what he was in 2018 or 2019 before the surge or before the injury, but he is a player that is on that progression that you always wanted to see. Maybe he was a little bit behind what we all expected or hoped that he would be, but, um, you know, it was good for him to get his first goal against Miami. The scoring isn't quite there, but I think that that's kind of in part due to um, the way that this team is still trying to figure out things in the attack overall. And some of the, I think that the team is lacking in some, in some personnel areas on the wings and things like that, that would supply him with goals that he's used to receiving. But uh, I, I think that he's on the right track to kind of get back to where he was. Again, it's all about how fast can he get there? You've alluded to this a few times, but how would you broadly describe what Gabriel Heinze team, a Gabriel Heinze team is trying to do? How are they want to play? What should Sounders fans expect to see on Sunday? They want to press, obviously, like that's, you know, in the modern game, that's, that's a very key thing. I think the thing that's most interesting to me about his system is that you really cannot pin it down to a formation. Um, they, they did play a more traditional back three in the last game against Montreal, but, you know, they signed a player who's one of these U22 designees, uh, Santiago Sosa, who's really an interesting player. And if, uh, if you want to kind of, you know, for Seattle fans, I would say that's the kind of the player you need to kind of cut off. You, you need to make sure that he's 
not make an impact because he is a guy who really dictates the way that Atlanta United uh, plays. And he plays kind of a, he's kind of like a, they call him a number five uh, in Argentina. It's kind of like he can play either as a defensive midfielder or as a center back, just depend again, it's all kind of tactical and based on um, based on the, the position that he's taking up. But the reason I say why you can't pin this team team down to a formation is because it's really about positional play. And, and it's, I don't want to get like, buried in some deep tactical discussion but it's really evident when you see this team in person you've got fullbacks coming inside like into like central midfield areas mm. so it's not like they the players have freedom really to move about the field however they want but there are just principles in terms of how many players you want in certain spaces to be able to kind of maximize your efficiency so it is kind of a very nebulous blob and I think that that's why they are having some trouble like they can pass all day long they can they can pass circles around you at the, in the back and then build up and things like that where this team is really struggling right now is trying to convert all that possession and all that good build-up play <clears throat> into something substantial going forward and some potency in the attack they just don't really have that right now uh, and again I would say that part of it's down to just the lack of wing play that they have on their roster right now I think another part of it's down to you know they've had players missing Jurgen Dam has been out uh, Ezekiel Barco has been out for the last couple of games. I don't know. We'll find out tomorrow if they're available um, for the game on the weekend, but you know, I think they miss those guys as well, but you know, this, that's, this team is very, very good in what they want to do. And, you know, it's funny. We've talked to Bobby Boswell. We talked to Michael Parkhurst, uh, Jeff Lorenowitz, and they all say, you know, playing under Tata, 90% of training was all about buildup. And, he, and Bobby Boswell tells a funny story. It's like the first time, thing I did when I got there was they just like rolled a ball at my feet and they were like, go. <laughs> and then uh, he's like, that was a little terrifying. But um, yeah, and, and that's, you can just tell that that's what this team has really been dedicated to focusing on, on the training pitch and, you know, the, the goal scoring and, and the attack is kind of the last piece that uh, will naturally fall into place. And so we'll see, maybe, maybe it starts to click a little bit more against Seattle on Personally, I don't know how you can really expect that to happen before you start to see the signs that it will. Um, but that's kind of generally what you can expect to see from Atlanta. Well, let's close out on this. Uh, the Sounders are going to be welcoming unvac or vaccinated sections back mm. into the stadium for the first time since uh, since the pandemic started. So we're going to have at least a full supporter section. Apparently, there's a bunch of sections in the 300 uh, that are going to be. Uh, full potentially as well not going to be a full stadium but it's going to so it's not going to quite look like uh like mercedes-benz looked last week where they had forty thousand largest crowd in the world i guess largest crowd to watch a soccer match in the world since mm-hmm. the start of pandemic like my my kind of squishy feelings a little bit aside like i i don't know how i i felt about that many people jumping up and down screaming <laughs> in each other's faces in a you know semi-closed stadium but it looked like a ton of fun. What was, I mean, how much of a, I assume you were there. What was it like being there? What do you think, like, what's your overall feeling about how the, the way this is all trending in terms of getting people back into the stadium? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, my personal feeling on it is I'm vaccinated, so I'm good. Um, and other people can can make their own decisions in that respect. And I think that we are like you do see like it was open to its full capacity. I don't they didn't quite sell it out like it was, you know, I think full capacity is like forty five thousand or mm. something like that. And it was a, a, I think they had forty one. And okay. I think that that's natural. I think that you're naturally still going to see some um, reticence. 
yeah some reticence and 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 some you know demand is going to be kind of tapered to an extent i think that over time people will just kind of realize i think probably people want to see like okay well our covid case is going to go up after something right. like this happens you know and they're probably <laughs> they'll wait a couple of weeks and if they're not maybe that will change their mind and they'll start going again um but you know again you, I, I told you my perspective on it and i've been going to braves games braves opened up their uh their stadium full capacity um uh, i guess it was like about a week prior because uh, they had a homestand and i cover the braves as well and so i go to all those games um and so for me it, it, there is definitely like when you first are around people you are it's on it's in the back of your mind it wasn't me at least but also the thing is you get around people and you see how much fun people are having and like how much people are just enjoying a sense of normalcy and just like being back in this environment and that kind of brightens your mood and it honestly kind of makes you forget about it a little bit you know again you're still seeing masks and things like that but uh you know I, I think it is honestly it's like it's a little bit nourishing for the soul just to kind of just to be in that environment. So the, I hope that Seattle fans get to kind of experience that as much as they can when they go to the game and um, to hopefully be able to put it out of their minds. And by the way, cases here have not gone up at all. In fact, that's they've, good. Con- that's they've continued good to fall. They've continued. I, I keep an eye on him on um, the cases in Georgia and the, the cases have just continued to taper down. So there hasn't been any evidence that this has been uh, indicative of, of a spreading event. And again, it's because we're, we're in a, it. The thing about vaccines is that, it really does change. It's like, it is like the deus ex machina. It's like, you know, an effect, especially a highly effective vaccines, like the ones we have, it is that we are in a different place in the world yeah. than we were even three, four months ago, you know? And so it's kind of hard to wrap oh, your mind around three or four that, weeks but, ago. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. Really? Like yeah. when you think about it, I mean, cause it's like, it's, I mean, I guess maybe the exponential growth of vaccines has not been, so extreme over the last three to four weeks but there is like every week there are more people being vaccinated and there are more people who can save like i i I think there's an emotional reaction to seeing like on two sides of seeing like a full crowd like that and but you're right like until we see evidence that it was uh actually a super spreader event there's no reason to be like beating yourself up over a potential super spreader event right especially if you can like on some level we have to start trusting people to make good decisions for themselves i think that this is probably a step in the right direction uh and it's good to hear that 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 it's not that we're not seeing that so far i've got a question for you which is how is how is the club going about um like how are people submitting their their proof of vaccination are they like just sending pictures of their cards or do you know how it's going down yeah that's a good question uh that's still uh, so apparently you have to show proof of vaccination, I think, to buy the tickets, but maybe it's only upon entry. I'm not totally sure how that's going to work. Obviously, this is the first big test. Like they officially just went on sale to the well, they they had a pre-sale to people who had not been able to buy tickets to the first batch of games earlier this week. And then yesterday, uh, if you had bought tickets, you were able to get access. And I think they're going on sale if there's still some left to the general public, maybe even now. Uh, so I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think you can either, like, I think there's a few different ways you can do it. You can either present a third party app. You can either take a picture of your vaccinate, your proof of vaccination. You can download proof of vaccination from, uh, the state website. Okay. okay. Or I, I suppose you might actually be able to show your physical card, although my suspicion is that they want to discourage the physical card part of it because it's easier to like lose. Yeah. And you easier. lose it. Yeah. Right. When you're pulling it out, it's, right. it's funny, you know, they, they drop the vaccine, the, or the, uh, 
you know, they, they've kind of re- um, relaxed restrictions here for us. And, uh, but still for media, it's like when you go in, you have to have like filled out the health app or yeah, whatever, that's or like, to fill out the questionnaires. Like, what was your last, what was your last temperature reads? Like, can I just show you my vaccination cards? Like, nope, you got to fill out right. the, the dumbass questionnaire. <laughs> well, in, in Seattle, what I get do, why, but you know, no, well, it, it is. I had this exact same conversation. So I, I covered the game last week and the Sounders actually have a, a, a like a, temperature a, a thermo like a thermal thermometer deal i don't know what mm-hmm. they can call that yeah uh but anyway they they make you take your temperature when you're walking to the stadium if you're uh, in the media and and there's like an app that you can fill out beforehand that like kind of goes through any symptoms you have if you don't fill that out you can fill out a, a physical card and so i just told them like can i just show you my back proof of vaccine and they're like no you can't <laughs> I was like, which, okay, which so, you would think would be even better advice, right. like evidence that you're good to go but right yeah. exactly but it's yeah fine. there's still there's still like physical distancing in the press box everyone's got to wear a mask which same i'm, yeah. I'm which I'm, I'm frankly fine with uh but it's it'll be interesting to see how this transitions because uh this will be by far the first the closest thing to normal that we'll have seen at at lumen field uh, since the start of the pandemic, for me, it was a pretty big deal to see fans there uh, at the season opener, which was, frankly, it was kind of like a powerful thing just to see fans, even though they were spread out all over the stadium, even though it diminishes the the atmosphere to not have like a supporter section. Like I'm, I'm like legitimately excited to see what it's like in the, with the supporters. Uh, you know, I have a lot of faith that like our supporters are particularly conscious of seemingly very conscious of like getting, making sure to get vaccinated and do all those kind of things. So I, I personally feel pretty good about that. Um, but we'll see, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, I remember at the beginning of the year, I, I suggested that, or maybe not in the beginning of the year, maybe like February, I, I, I was telling people like, yeah, I'm sure we're going to have fans this year. And they're like, that just seems so naive. Mm-hmm. It's like, not only do we going to have fans, but we might have full <laughs> stadiums uh, oh, yeah. by the summer. But anyway, um, I really appreciate you hanging out, uh, Joe, I, dirty South soccer. If you are a, if you are an MLS fan, it's a, if you're a Seattle lead. Sounders fan who is a masochist and wants to read about Atlanta United. Right. You can come on, head on over where we're, <laughs> the water is warm. I'll, I'll say, I'll, yeah, I'll say this. Like uh, there are not enough great MLS sites out there. And I think Dirty South Soccer is one of them. And so, you know, we get people all the time complaining about how the comment sections at these other sites are kind of dead not the case at Dirty South Soccer. Uh, you will find a willing and able uh, commentariat there. Uh, well, we're, we're again, we're very fortunate that it's like that because of a lot of things we discussed earlier in this show, just with the the way that the club is has kind of escalated yeah. at this point. So, yes, but uh, for sure, follow Joe if you if you can put up with some Braves uh, content <laughs> yeah. to be mixed in with his Atlanta United con. What's your Twitter handle? J A Patrick two hundred. It's an absolute terror. Terrible Twitter. Yeah, handle. how did you? It was fix that. It was my hotmail that I made when I was in like sixth grade. Jfactor two hundred at hotmail.com. Yeah, so Perfect. just carried it over to Twitter. Why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? That's a it's a good handle. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, Dirty South Soccer, Joe Patrick, Sounders on Sunday against Atlanta United. It'll be a fun one. It always is. I'm Jeremiah Shan. This is the Sounder at Heart podcast, and we'll catch you next time.